Um, so it's a really, really nice occasion to be able to return now um, and talk about this project, which is actually quite a distance from my um, default project, which was on international criminal law. It was quite a doctrinal project. This is a generalist public international law effort, um, and the projects are still very much at, um, at the working out stages, so, so any feedback would actually be really welcome. Um, so let me try and set the theme first. Um, it was a frosty spring morning in 2012 where a packed courtroom awaited the historic verdict in the trial of Charles Taylor at the Special um, Tribunal for Sierra Leone, in the former, in former, which was located in The Hague. Taylor appeared completely unmoved as the president read out the 44-page summary of the judgment, which unanimously convicted him of war crimes and crimes against humanity. But as the three-member panel, the judges, rose to leave the courtroom, something unprecedented happened. Judge So, who was a Senegalese jurist who was appointed as an alternate judge to sit on the trial in case one of the regular judges could not be present, started speaking to voice his disagreement with this unanimous three-member judgment in the Charles Taylor trial. Undeterred, the other three members of the panel continued to file out, and Judge So kept speaking from behind this glass barrier, but then his microphone was cut off. And he continued speaking, as everybody could see him in the gallery, continuing to speak from behind this glass barrier without the microphone, till a metal grate was drawn um, in the separation between the gallery and his, uh, and his speaking. So he was actually cut off then from the public gallery. But the court stenographer, who hadn't been informed about what to do, went on recording his statement, as he is meant to do in the case of the trial, and later on in the evening, an unofficial copy of the transcript of what Judge So had been saying was circulated amongst trial observers and made its way into the media. And in that unofficial transcript, Judge So essentially said that because there had been no deliberative process in the actual convening of the judges and their chambers and the final judgment, he was forced to use this space, this space of the courtroom, to publicly voice his disagreement with the way in which the, re the deliberation had been carried out and also with the ultimate verdict in the Charles Taylor trial. And observers, of course, um, reading Judge So's statement and later on, the media, there was absolute consternation. Most legal, legal scholars who picked up on Judge So's statement were pretty, there was a consensus that there's, it has very little value as a matter of formal law so the Charles Taylor verdict still stands, it's still a unanimous judgment. Judge So's statement doesn't really have any formal legal effect. But there was still a worry that um, the fact that he had voiced his disagreement, and especially in this very, very public way, would give credence to Taylor apologists, maybe, and it could certainly undermine prospects for peace and reconciliation in Liberia and Sierra Leone, if that's what the special tribunal was indeed meant to do. So the question is, if this statement had no formal legal effect, and if Judge So, being a jurist, a fairly, fairly well-respected jurist back in Senegal, if he was aware of this fact, that it will have no formal legal effect, why was he motivated to speak in this highly dramatic way? And is the form in which he spoke, which is oral, so it wasn't a written speech, it was also quite confrontational, so the style of his speech, does that matter? Was Judge So justified in speaking out within the formal confines of the courtroom space after the majority had, um, after the unanimous panel had finished delivering its judgment? Or should he have confined his remarks to a space outside the courtroom? Which in fact he did. He gave an interview to an African magazine a couple of months later saying essentially the same thing that he had tried to say inside the courtroom space. And then how is the other, how is the court supposed to react to the fact that he spoke in this manner? Um, there was no formal sanction as such applied to Judge So, but his statements were expunged from, um, from the judgment. So the transcript disappeared, there's no formal record of it except on blogs any longer, and so his remarks do not form part of the official record as far as the special court is concerned. And was this enough if, you know, doing this, would, was this enough? These and related questions are at the heart of the current project I'm working on, that is um, on separate judicial speech, 
which is any instance where a judge speaks independently and separately from the court as an institution on which he or she sits. So I've been working on this for a couple of months now, uh, along with my co-author, Cosette Creamer. She's a political scientist at the University of Minnesota. And the idea is to draw on both political science, law, sociology, and affiliated fields to really try and disaggregate this notion of judicial speech. So what would the structure, function, and role perception of courts, especially international courts, look like if we took the phenomenon of judicial speech both on and off the bench seriously? When judges write and speak separately, as they often do, um, when they dissent, when they concur, when they ask questions from the bench, when they publish um, in academic outlets like law reviews or books, but also when they sanction biopics or memoirs or give interviews in magazines, when they attend conferences, when they speak in workshops. What functions are judges performing if they still continue to hold the judicial office, especially? Do different forms of speaking separately carry the same resonance? Do they have the same connotation? Does an academic article by a judge discussing their views um, that relate to some of the legal issues in a judgment have the same resonance as a written separate opinion? whether it's a concurrence or a dissent. And is speaking separately an inherently public act? So in the domestic context, for instance, um, in the domestic U.S. Supreme Court context, where there's been a lot of analysis on separate speech, judges would sometimes write what's called a graveyard dissent, which is that they would dissent, they would circulate this dissenting memo to their fellow judges in the hope that they would never have to publish it. So the fellow judges would take this seriously into consideration and if the dissenting judge was satisfied, or if they thought there was some other reason why their disagreement should not be public, they filed a graveyard dissent. And the only reason we know that these graveyard dissents exist is because of subsequent memoirs or archival research, um, which then went public. So in order to start answering this question, um, what we do is we identify and interrogate the formal and informal ways in which judges make their voices heard, Some instances, as I said, are more visible and they're more institutionalized than others. Others are more hidden, they're more informal. Some are expressive and dialogic. They're directed towards fellow judges or members of the bench or some legal audience or maybe even non-legal audience, whereas others don't attempt to engage in a dialogue. Some are purely individual acts, so a judge speaks themselves, one singular person, one singular voice. But sometimes judges speak collectively. They they spend separate opinions or dissents or concurrences with collective ones or join other judges in doing so. And the dimensions that we want to suggest of these different ways of speaking separately are not exhaustive, nor do we say that they reflect binary categories, um, but they're layered continuums along which we might place a judge's act of speaking separately. And then finally, what we want to suggest is that understanding separate judicial speech is not simply an academic exercise. In focusing on the various ways in which judges signal their individuality, we seek to reorient the existing debate in international law, which has by and large treated international judicial bodies as monolithic entities, but we want to focus on the behaviors, practices, motivations of individual judicial behavior and talk about judges as potentially public actors and potentially political actors in international law. And so the project has some implications both for how we think about things like the appointment of judges, the rules and procedures, and the ethical rules and standards governing what judges can do, both on and off the bench, maybe even after they leave office, not simply while they're during during their term, and also what this means for states and for stakeholder buy-in in international courts at a time when everyone's talking about the backlash against international institutions, um, and the picture looks pretty dire, at least for some courts or some bodies, Uh, like the WTO appellate body, for instance. So before I get into the meat of the argument, I just want to quickly and briefly sketch out um, what is it that we're talking about, the phenomenon of judicial speech in international courts, both on and off the bench, and then um, I'll get into the typology that we develop. So as most of you are probably aware, with a few limited exceptions, um, and they're important exceptions, most courts, counting into the most international courts and adjudicative mechanisms, countenance the possibility of judges speaking separately, um, as far as the rules are concerned. And um, the paper that we're working on um, identifies six, we take six different judicial bodies, um, because it would be 
not very practical and not particularly useful to look at every single international tribunal. We take six that we think are the busiest and most prominent courts that also exhibit some sort of diversity. So we look at courts of general jurisdiction, such as the ICJ. We look at global bodies with limited subject matter jurisdiction, like the WTO appellate body uh, and also the International Criminal Court. We look at influential regional courts with very large dockets, such as the European Court of Human Rights and the Court of Justice of the European Union. And then we look at ad hoc dispute settlement mechanisms, like arbitral tribunals. So the idea is to cover a range of subject matters and a range of bodies in, um, in excavating this, this area. So in this sample set, on the one hand, you have courts like the ICC, uh, the ICJ, the European Court of Human Rights, where the governing set of rules and regulations, practice directives, etc., um, clearly permits individual opinions. So as far as the law is concerned, individual opinions are completely kosher. There is nothing wrong with them. Um, in the middle, you have um, tribunals and adjudicative mechanisms dealing with international economic law and international trade law, where there's more of a reluctance in the rules themselves to embrace judges speaking separately. So for instance, uh, most uh, instruments in international investment law do not in fact say anything about whether or not you can express um, yourself separately as an arbitrator. And the silence is especially pronounced in international commercial arbitration, even more so in international investment arbitration. And you also see a very strong preference for unanimity um, at the WTO um, under the dispute settlement understanding of the WTO, both at the panel level and then at the appellate level, where there's a very strong preference for unanimity and the, um, the appellate body members themselves have adopted working procedures which encourage consensus in all cases. And on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, um, the CGEU, the Court of Justice of the European Union, is unique in completely prohibiting and barring any form of separate opinion. And various reasons have been suggested for this, for this bar. Um, the CGEU is modeled very heavily on the French judicial system, where all decisions are considered to be made and delivered in the name of the court and not as an institution and not by individuals who comprise this court. Of course, the rules by themselves don't tell us very much about how and to what extent this freedom to speak separately is actually exercised by judges. Because the rules provide an overall framework, but judges may or may not be inclined to dissent or concur or speak off the bench, depending on the institutional culture, political preferences, career incentives, professional backgrounds. For instance, um, there's some studies showing that academics tend to not shut up and want to express themselves separately. It's different if you're a career diplomat, maybe you would be inclined to not speak separately. And of course, there's personal preferences, which are you know, not tied to any necessary structural framework. And in this, um, again, as most of you probably know, ICJ judges are perhaps the most prolific users of separate opinions. Um, in fact, a unanimous judgment with no concurrences, declarations, or dissents is a vanishingly rare phenomenon at the ICJ. And the suggestion has been that one of the reasons for this might be because of the way in which ICJ judgments are drafted, because at the drafting stage, each judge is supposed to come prepared with their tentative draft, which gets circulated and then discussed. And the idea is while this, uh, while this encourages deliberation, if you've already prepared a draft and you're not happy, then there's not very much work involved in getting it to the final stage and actually issuing a dissent should you not be happy with your fellow judges at the end of it. Um, there's been other suggestions, too, about national bias for, for one's home country, considering the procedure for the appointment of ICJ judges, uh, but not only for your own home country, but also for countries with similar cultural and political um, characteristics. Um, that's been the suggestion that that might encourage ICJ judges to, to be publishing separate opinions. And similar reasoning has been offered in the, in the context of the European Court of Human Rights, which also has a very, very high rate of separate opinions. Um, the empirical studies are a little all over the place and they don't use the same data necessarily, but the estimate is anywhere between 60 to 80% of European Court of Human Rights judgments also have a separate opinion in the form of a concurrence or a, or a dissent. And again, other factors apart from just national bias have been suggested. Uh, so for instance, judges from pre-enlargement member states, so mostly Western European states, tend to append more dissenting opinions than judges uh, post-enlargement from post-enlargement member states. 
And also judges with an activist background and human rights lawyering tend to append more separate opinions, uh, statistically at least, um, than judges from other backgrounds. Um, separate opinions are also on the rise in investment arbitration. Um, the latest empirical data suggests that uh, almost a fifth of, um, of the ones that are published in investment arbitration, the opinions, have at least one separate or dissenting opinion. And you see a similar trend in the International Criminal Court, where both at the trial chamber level and at the appellate chamber level, um, separate opinions are increasingly a fixture um, at the ICC. In contrast, there is still a strong norm for consensus decision-making at the WTO, and there have been remarkably few separate opinions. And again, various reasons have been suggested, including the internal working procedures of the members of the appellate body that encourage collegiality in decision-making and deliberation, um, and a very strong preference for a strong, stable adjudicator in, on economic matters, on trade matters, uh, which is considered more important than getting it right, um, according to some members of the appellate body. Written individual opinions, though, still give us only a very partial snapshot of what's happening at the international level, because judges, of course, also speak off the bench. They don't simply speak um, on the bench. And they have become more visible actors in some ways um, whose opinions and whose speeches and what they do off the bench is being subjected to more and more scrutiny, um, including by member states. One of the more controversial fallouts of this hyper-visibility has been the recent controversy in the WTO appellate body where oral questioning by the Korean member of the WTO appellate body, uh, Mr. Chang, was used by the United States to say to attribute certain portions of the report produced by the appellate body to him. So the appellate body's report um, is a unanimous report that issued in the name of the appellate body. You cannot identify individual opinions or writers in that report. But because of the questions that Mr. Chang asked during the proceedings, the U.S. said we can figure out which are the controversial parts of this report that he wrote, and we're not going to support his reappointment. So oral questioning, um, you know, what are the consequences in some ways of attributing this sort of ownership or authorship of statements um, that are used during oral questioning and which the judge does not intend necessarily as a formal statement of what they stand for. International judges are also increasingly more active outside the courtroom space. Um, as I said, they're frequent invitees and commentators in conferences, workshops, symposia, um, teaching sessions, and quite a few of them author books and articles, um, including popular books and memoirs. Uh, the trend is more visible, perhaps, in international tribunals, but there's quite a close connection between your academic credentials <coughs> and the reason why you're appointed to these bodies in the first place, um, where there's some premium placed on being active in the academic sphere. Um, an academic forum might, in fact, be one of the few respectable venues that judges can actually use when they're otherwise barred from issuing separate opinions. We see this in the context of the Court of Justice of the European Union. Because judges are not allowed to say anything separately as a formal part of the court opinion, we see CGEU judges being very active in, um, in publishing articles in academic, in academic journals um, on all sorts of legal issues, including what they think about separate opinions at the CGEU. Um, so, so they clearly exercise that freedom outside the courtroom. So now we have an idea of some of the ways in which international judges speak, whether it's on the bench or off the bench. The next question is, what does all this judicial chatter actually mean for international law? And our short answer is very different things, depending on the type of judicial speech that we're concerned with. And so the paper is our first crack, in some ways, at identifying these different kinds of speech and their potential and their implications for um, the role and function of judges in the creation and application um, and reception of both international law and domestic law to some extent. And the idea for the future is to, is to do more fine-grained empirical work on individual judicial speech in specific tribunals and specific courts to test this conceptual framework that we're trying to develop at this stage. So we place the most salient forms of judicial separate speech along five dimensions of variance. And I'm going to go through all five. The first is formal versus informal. So the prototypical separate speech is the dissent, mostly written, but occasionally oral, or less commonly the concurrence. 
But these represent a very small fraction of the numerous ways in which judges make their individual voices heard, especially in legal systems where the judge is not meant to be um, an anonymous civil servant, but they're actually quite a highly visible public figure. So again, if you look at domestic legal systems, um, systems like the United States are a complete outlier, of course, with a very high public profile of the occupants of its judicial office, uh, particularly those who are appointed to the Supreme Court. Uh, Supreme Court justices themselves have embraced the blurring of the boundaries at times between their public and their personal lives. Um, the latest example, of course, is Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, of, of the Supreme Court, um, who's now become a pop culture icon who transcends both the high and lowbrow cultural divide. There's an opera about her, there are tattoos with just, you know, RBG, there's memes, there's a Saturday Night Live character, um, there's biopics, um, you know, and the memes say, I dissent. So, you know, that is what the meme, in fact, says on Justice RBG. Um, similar trend actually seems to be taking hold in the UK, interestingly, uh, with Lady Hale, you know, former president of the Supreme Court, um, now considered a household name, uh, but also being called the Beyonce of the legal profession. Uh, not fully sure Justice Hale would listen to Beyonce, but, um, but yeah, the Guardian refers to her as the Beyonce, and so does the independent of the legal profession. Um, no international judge has um, acquired a public profile to this extent. Um, no one's Beyonce. Uh, but examples abound of um, cults of celebrity in specific areas of international law. Um, for instance, for those of you who are obsessed with Netflix, um, Judge Radhavinod Pal of the International Military Tribunal for the Far East is the main character of a Netflix miniseries, um, it's a historical drama, um, where he is the main character. Um, uh, I have lots to say about the stereotyping of uh, Indian judges, but never mind, uh, uh, in, the, in the Netflix series. So we refer to so these kinds of judicial speech, which occur in multiple fora, outside the courtroom, straddle the divide between formality and informality. And so for us, formal speech refers to judicial speech that's actually part of the courtroom proceedings, semi-formal to speech that is extrajudicial in character, but is nonetheless an extension of this formal judicial role, and informal to statements that are made in the public sphere without any explicit reference to the speaker's judicial identity. And as far as scholarship is concerned, um, especially scholarship in international law, it's focused primarily on the first category, so formal judicial speech, separate speech, that happens inside the courtroom space. And that too, most scholarship is on dissenting opinions, not on concurrences as much, not on separate declarations, but really on dissents. For instance, there's virtually no scholarly analysis of oral dissents in international tribunals. And as we see in Judge Sow's case, where he chose to speak separately, one of the reasons why it was so controversial was because no one knew what to call it. He was dissenting, dissenting as a layperson would understand it, but was he issuing a dissent um, in choosing to speak separately within the courtroom space? Because clearly there's something different about speaking separately orally. When you deliver something simultaneously, at the point of time when things are being broadcast, especially which they were, which they are now, the oral opinion conveys and embodies immediacy especially in a world of live media updates and the Twitterverse. And when you deliver an oral dissent or any kind of statement in charged circumstances like the Taylor trial, the dissent commands attention in a way that might be quite different from a 40-page written dissent, which is issued, I don't know, a couple of months when everyone's forgotten what the verdict was. So there's something different about an oral dissent, but um, not almost no work has been done on it. And beyond the oral dissent, um, as I said, judges formally speak from the bench um, in the form of questions or statements. And the reasons why judges are asking questions um, might be motivated by, by, different by different reasons. Sometimes you're just trying to understand what counsel is saying, and that's why you're asking questions. Sometimes you're trying to play a devil's advocate. You may not really believe what you're saying. You're just trying to push counsel so you understand, again, you really see the limits of the argument. Obviously, none of these things are true of a separate opinion, like an actual dissent or a concurrence. Normally, you don't dissent just to push your fellow judges' buttons and see you know, what they will see in response. And things get even trickier once we move outside the courtroom space, where judges deliver public lectures, where they participate in symposia, where they publish academic articles. And there, you will usually have an initial disclaimer by a judge 
saying that anything they say is not in their official capacity. Nonetheless, it's quite difficult to formally isolate the official capacity of the judge or what they're saying from their utterances in these symposia or their workshops. And frankly, it's not very clear that we meant to do so. So a prime example um, of this of this elision between the roles is again CGEU judges who can't speak from within the courtroom and so they use academic outlets um, in a way to influence the reform process at the CGEU. And finally, informal judicial statements um, that are ostensibly divorced from, uh, from the judicial role but are nonetheless intended for public consumption. What about those? So again, in the United States, this is very common. Judges sanction biopics and biographies. They write memoirs, they write plays, they publish books of poetry. Um, but this phenomenon is not unknown, even in international law. And again, you have uh, especially judges at the European Court of Human Rights who have penned um, books of poetry, um, but, also, um, but also accounts of their life at the European Court of Human Rights. And the question is, how and to what extent are we meant to separate these acts of speaking the poetry may be slightly easier to disentangle, but account of memoir of my life for the European Court of Human Rights, um, less easy to disentangle from whatever they might have said and done um, in their judicial capacity. So that's the first category, formal versus informal. The second dimension that we highlight is visible versus obscured. So speech, judicial speech, um, is normally, again, the prototype is that of visible speech, but the question is, must, must a judge voice an opinion publicly and prominently in order for it to count as separate judicial speech? There are, of course, examples of judges who, um, who issue very distinctive and extremely visible separate opinions, but an individual opinion does not need to be prominently labeled and displayed as such. Again, if you look at the WTO, both concurrences and, uh, and dissents are anonymously embedded Within, uh, within the dispute reports, um, or sometimes they're even included within footnotes in some cases. So it's not a very prominent opinion, and it's not identifiable as issuing from a particular author. Judges can also circulate and exchange memoranda, letters, notes, emails between themselves, and these will never see the light of the day unless they are uncovered subsequently um, through archival research or unless the judges choose to make them public after they leave office. Even less visible are instances where a judge expresses disagreement internally over the procedure or the reasoning or the outcome, but there's no public trace of the fact of the disagreement. Again, for instance, in the CGEU, because we have a single judgment requirement, whatever cannot be agreed on by everyone is simply excised from the judgment. So it leaves no public record or trace um, and is rendered invisible to people who are not within the courtroom and to insiders. Why would judges do this? Um, so the decision to refrain from <coughs> nailing, nailing one's colors to the mast could be influenced by, again, a whole host of factors, um, personal and institutional. You might want to not upset your fellow colleagues, and so you disagree internally, but on the whole, you want to preserve a united front. You might think it is, in fact, important to preserve a united front on highly controversial decisions. For instance, if you look at the Brexit decisions in the UK, in the domestic context, one of the things the media highlighted in, in commentary on that was the fact that it was a unanimous decision. And there's something about a unanimous decision that's considered more powerful than the fact that a very highly fractured decision. So that might be another reason why, despite serious internal disagreement, judges might feel it's really important that we speak with one voice to the outside world. Or you may simply not care very much about the issue on which you disagree. So you say, I'm going to hold it back now, and I'm going to bargain, use it as a bargain in the future, when I really do care about something. So there's lots of reasons why you might, may not want to make your disagreement public, uh, but of course, the fact that you don't make it public uh, will impact the reach of the reasons uh, why you disagreed, or why you would have wanted to concur, because your opinion may be partially or completely obscured from public view, um, at least till the time you choose to make it public, maybe um, later on. The third dimension that we um, highlight is individual versus collective. Um, collegiality on multi-member courts is typically lauded, and there's lots of critiques of speaking separately. 
the idea is that there's a lot of interpersonal costs, there's costs to your colleagues, there's costs in terms of resources, opinion writing, delays maybe if you're taking really long to write your separate opinion. And so in this view, um, the romanticized lone dissenter or the proliferation of strident, the proliferator of strident separate opinions is a threat to collegiality on the court and, is might, and might be a burden on an already overstretched court that has a very large docket. But even in the former judicial context, separate speech is not always individualistic. It may even contribute to or exhibit collegiality. At times, the judge does stand alone when they speak through individual dissents, individual monographs, oral questioning. And lone dissents are in some ways quite puzzling from a psychological perspective um, because group conformity, depending on especially how small and cohesive your bench is, um, there is serious peer pressure to, to conform to some extent. It's very hard to dissent from people um, you respect and you work alongside in, repeat, in a repeat player scenario. But at the same time, voicing support for a proposition when you don't actually agree with it uh, also takes a psychological toll in terms of um, how you relate to your job. At other times, though, when a judge speaks separately, they speak collectively with other fellow judges. And again, in most tribunals where we see a very high rate of concurrences, um, they're joint concurrences, or a very high rate of dissents, they're joint dissents. What might explain why a judge would choose to speak collectively rather than separately? Are there factors that we can identify which encourage penning of joint separate opinions, uh, whether they're concurrences or dissents? Um, one suggestion has been that the prevalence of joint, jointly dissenting or jointly concurring is likely to increase as the number of people on the bench increases because chances are you can find somebody who you will agree with at least to some extent and it's just more efficient to, for you to divide your work and write parts of bits and pieces of the opinion. Um, the other suggestion is that uh, the more diversity on the bench, um, the less likely it is that you can find interlocutors with whom you're comfortable having uh, a joint separate opinion. But these two factors don't take us very far. Um, for instance, if you look at something like the ICJ, 15 highly ideologically um, and culturally diverse judges by virtue of the reason why they're appointed, um, representing different traditions of member states. Large bench, um, but they do both individual opinions and also collective opinions, and it's hard to see why. Are there certain coalitions of judges that always write together? Are people buddies, either in real life or, um, or in legal life, that they tend to write together or agree on most things? Um, we don't know. Um, again, if you look at something like the European Court of Human Rights, um, one suggestion has been that there is a lot of joint, joint separate writing simply because of workload constraints, um, because, joint, because separate opinions receive no drafting support from the registry. So the registry um, plays a very prominent role in the drafting of, uh, of the judgment as such, but for separate opinions, you're on your own. So given um, the high docket of the European Court of Human Rights, fairly tight deadlines, no support from the registry, um, you're just trying to make your life easier and, um, and write alongside somebody rather than by yourself. Judges also rely on clerks, obviously, um, to, to um, assist in preparation for oral arguments and also suggest questions that a judge can pose to parties. Uh, WTO panelists, for instance, um, often ask the exact same question that's been prepared by the secretariat. Um, but we see this practice in a number of international courts where there's detailed memos prepared by law clerks who become a very significant part of the institutional life of the court. Um, you see them passing notes and exchanging things even during the proceedings. And so when judges pose these questions that are prepared by somebody else, either the secretariat or the clerk, um, if it's a memo, etc., should we consider this an act of collective speech? Um, and who bears responsibility for what is said? Or put differently, who is actually speaking in this case? The fourth dimension um, that I want to talk about is present versus future oriented. So judicial speech has a temporal orientation. It's often linked to the motivation behind speaking separately uh, from the point of view of the individual judge. If the intent is to persuade colleagues or if it's to um, influence the thinking of litigants, a judge will typically orient their remarks to the present context and to the audience 
to the fair audience, the litigants, or your fellow judges. At other times, though, the speech is oriented towards more proximate or future um, causes, and the intent is to influence the next generation of law students or legislatures or future litigants, so not the current, the current proceeding or the current court, but something in the future. And these attempts at persuasion, which are typically about broader legal principles or broader doctrines um, to the public and to the future, very often outline an alternate vision of what the law could be or what this doctrine could be or what this principle could be. And this is particularly true of dissent, um, which in the domestic context have been characterized as the brooding appeal to the intelligence of a future day because the time is just not right, right now for them. Whereas concurrences might be uh, more oriented towards the immediate future because they show um, both lawyers and litigants that they can focus their efforts in a particular direction, um, including in that particular proceeding or set of proceedings. Other ways of speaking separately, like academic articles, policy memos, um, etc., by judges, similarly orient the force um, to future developments. A striking example of this is actually um, uh, the heavy involvement of both current and previous sitting judges of the European Court of Human Rights in the debate surrounding the reform process of the European Court of uh, the Convention on Human Rights. Because a number of judges have written policy papers, memos, articles, given speeches, um, and weighed in on the reform debates um, from Protocol 11 to Interlaken and beyond. And so here the idea is clearly very much to influence not litigants um, and not the particular proceeding, but some future reform effort. It's worth noting, though, that there will be occasions when there's a disjunction between the intended temporal orientation of the speech and its actual impact, um, if it even materializes, um, because the judge might intentionally choose to focus on specific types of content, legal, extra-legal. They might choose to speak in a certain way, uh, formal, informal, confrontational, with a certain audience in mind, but ultimately they have <coughs> very little control uh, once the speech is out of their mouths as to what happens to this speech. Um, it's possible that even though the speech is intended to be present-oriented, it takes weeks, months, even years to percolate in, in sort of the wider social consciousness. Um, though occasionally we have examples of judges trying to influence the space and the reach of the dissemination um, by generating the appropriate publicity for, um, for their separate speech. And this raises concerns about judicial propriety, limits of uh, direct judicial engagement with, with external stakeholders, um, considerations I will return to in a, in a moment after, after this last dimension that we identified, which is monologic versus dialogic. So not all instances of speaking separately are acts of defiance or rebellion, which is the way people tend to think about dissenters. Um, but appending a separate opinion, including a dissent, might be motivated by a desire to bolster the reasoning or the conclusion that's reflected in a majority judgment. Both dissents and concurrences can be looked at, can be looked at as a medium for engaging one's fellow judges um, in a visible dialogue, because it's visible to everyone, uh, on the substance of whatever the dispute is, the legal dispute is. For us, separate opinions are more or less monologic or dialogic, depending on whether the speech is directed towards and in conversation with the other members on the bench, or if it's primarily individualistic and oppositional in character vis-a-vis -vis the fellow judges. Dialogic separate opinions can, be, um, can exhibit a range of voices in terms of style and content, but what's common to all of these is that though the judge chooses to speak individually and separately, they refrain from questioning the legitimacy of the process or of their fellow judges. They can be fairly assertive or they can be deferential, but the dialogic opinion is typically respectful of the majority and the authority of the legal process and it's fairly constructive in spirit. The idea is to encourage dialogue and debate um, amongst people you respect and who you work with. In contrast, monologic separate opinions are not addressed only, or not even primarily, to the fellow judges. Usually a, mon a monologic opinion will avoid a point-by-point -point rebuttal of whatever the majority has said. Um, instead, it will seek to construct its own version of the dispute. Um, it's usually fairly individualistic in its tone to the extent that you're addressing any remarks to your fellow judges. They don't exhibit the hope or of any continued dialogue 
um, or engagement with the fellow judges. In fact, at times they veer towards the other extreme of reproachful or even accusatory. Um, in some cases, the refusal to engage in, um, with your fellow judges comes at a very serious cost to civility and, both to and also to institutional um, legitimacy. Um, we have a recent um, fairly bizarre, I should say, example of a monologic extrajudicial opinion, which is Australian Judge David Ray's litigation before the Appeals Court um, Appeals Chamber of the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. Um, judge Ray is uh, actually a presiding judge, has been a presiding judge in Trial Chamber 1 of the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. But in a series of motions before the STL, he contested the appointment of judges to Trial Chamber 2. He tried to prevent the swearing in of a fellow judge and he subsequently accused both the president and another fellow judge of uh, breaking fundamental rules of judicial conduct, including uh, judicial partiality, impartiality. A judge, as opposed to a party to the dispute, filing a motion before the very court of which he is a member to disqualify another judge and prevent them from being sworn in is uh, fairly unprecedented uh, in both domestic and in international law. So this is clearly not very dialogic. Um, uh, quite the opposite. This choice of argumentative style is of, of course consequential for the force with which it conveys the author's values. In other words, words are politics. When a judge elects to voice a monologic separate opinion, they're explicitly or implicitly challenging the institutional authority of the court, the legitimacy of the majority opinion, or in most cases both. And in contrast to a dialogic opinion, uh, which you can still look upon as an act of participating in a common collective enterprise, a monologic separate opinion is a self-conscious denunciation of this collective enterprise. So it's a totally different character. So what is at stake in disaggregating these separate kinds of judicial speech and identifying the dimensions along which they vary? We want to argue that when a judge speaks separately, she potentially speaks to multiple audiences both intended and unintended. And the extent to which these different forms of speech, judicial speech, will have effects will vary depending on these dimensions that we've outlined. Uh, the effect can be very broad and significant, it can be less impactful, or it can be consequential for a limited audience only, depending on the kind of speech it is. So in terms of the most proximate audience for a judge, that's their fellow colleagues um, when they're speaking. And speaking separately can be consequential for the other judges on the bench because speaking separately may convince your colleagues to follow a different line of reasoning, may convince or persuade your colleagues to draft something differently, or even maybe change their opinion in terms of the ultimate judgment. But even if you're unsuccessful in persuading your colleagues to do anything at all, a separate opinion will force the majority to at least enter into a dialogue with you, typically, whether internally um, in the hope that you will bury your separate opinion, you will not make it public, um, you will issue a graveyard dissent, um, or in public, with the hope that the majority can demonstrate the weaknesses of the minority opinion by taking it into account and showing how the points raised in the minority opinion are not actually persuasive. If the judges fail to engage with the separate opinion, this will typically have consequences for collegiality on the bench especially in cases where judges have long, long terms of appointment and they can expect to work together over a significant period of time. Um, and in this context, um, dialogic or collective separate opinions are less likely to be costly because, again, they're intended to be engaging with your fellow judges. Um, if you're speaking collectively, there's at least a significant core of the court that believes differently. You're not simply some habitual dissenter who's just cranky and who dissents all the time because that's what they like to do. Um, so the cost on collegiality and on your fellow judges will be quite different depending on the kind of speech it is. The next audience um, for the separate speech is the parties to the case, the litigants in the case. Speaking separately, when it's visible, not when you hide it, but when, when you speak publicly, visibly, that might vindicate the position of the losing party to some extent, because at least somebody's taken their opinion into account, or it might provide alternative support for the winning party. If you concur, but your reasoning is different publicly, it might offer some alternative support 
which the uh, majority opinion has not taken into account. The way in which a judge speaks separately in the form of questioning during arguments can also be consequential for the parties because it signals arguments that judges may ultimately find persuasive, whether at the appellate stage or during the course of the proceedings themselves. But separate speech can also have negative consequences for the parties. Um, for example, people worry that in tribunals like the ICJ um, that deal with very high-stakes political disputes um, without any corresponding enforcement authority, the increased cacophony that's produced by an in-house band of official critics will negatively impact the enforcement of the judgment. And opposition to separate opinions is also pretty strong in uh, more economic fields like uh, trade and arbitration. And the fear is that even the option to dissent disincentivizes the judge or the arbitrator from trying to achieve consensus if it's on a highly, um, if it's a high stakes legal issue. And it also increases the risk that the award, uh, the arbitral award for instance, might be challenged in domestic proceedings taking the separate opinion as a basis for the challenge. This risk again will be more, will be higher with monologic opinions um, that challenge the legitimacy of the process or of uh, the judgment. Um, but collective separate speech might undermine a majority judgment more than separate speech by a single judge because if you can dismiss, you can dismiss one person, but if bands of people keep dissenting, um, then it's harder to dismiss them and maybe they gain more credibility in terms of a challenge, subsequent challenge. The next audience is the legal profession as a whole, and this includes other courts and the legislature, um, and at their most consequential, visible separate opinions become future law. And this can happen in two ways. It can either happen through jurisprudential developments, because whatever the separate speech has said is now taken up in future cases, but it can also signal um, areas where there needs to be reform conducted by member states or through legislative processes, um, and they can propose lines of thinking that these reform processes must, must undertake. Separate speech can also be consequential for lawyers who are thinking, especially in the case of cause lawyering or strategic lawyering, separate speech can signal lines of argument that might be persuasive to certain judges or to certain coalitions of judges in a future litigation or what might be able, sufficient to garner majority support. Um, separate opinions are um, also consequential for other courts. Um, there's been a lot of discussion in international tribunals about borrowing between borrowing of concepts, borrowing of doctrines, borrowing of ideas between different courts. And there are various fora where judges from different tribunals now come together and hang out in a retreat. And so it's not just formal, formal borrowing of concepts, but informal borrowing of ideas and sharing of um, how to tackle similar problems. Um, that can be consequential, those kinds of separate speech for what happens in other courts, even if uh, there's no formal citation to, to this kind of formal spe separate speech. Speaking separately can also be consequential for more distin distant stakeholders, which is the broader public and other constituencies. It might contribute to or spark deliberation amongst the broader public. It could contribute to the legitimacy and authority of the court in different, amongst different stakeholders. And again, the kind of speech will have an impact. A dialogic separate opinion, which is collective, is much more likely to contribute to the court's authority um, and legitimacy because it takes the court itself seriously, whereas one that's oppositional and monologic um, or oral dissents that are typically used to dramatize disagreements uh, between the fellow judges, those might um, in fact reduce the institutional legitimacy, the societal legitimacy of the court. And then finally, separate speech can be consequential for a judge themselves, for their own career prospects. Um, as I mentioned in the case of the WTO, um, the separate speech oral questioning during the proceedings was extremely consequential for Mr. Chang, um, who, uh, who the U.S. refused to reappoint, but it was also consequential for the WTO appellate body dispute settlement process, um, what was called only a decade ago as perhaps the most successful dispute settlement mechanism in international law, now does not exist, for better or for worse. And so this is a highly consequential impact um, of treating separate speech in this way as uh, being attributable to, to a single member of the appellate body. And even off the bench, um, when judges speak separately, like in academic publications, interviews, public appearances, that can of course influence the judge's professional trajectory 
um, as well, and not simply their own personal trajectories. So given this range of potential consequences of the different ways in which judges make their voices heard, we say that separate judicial speech implicates the role that individual judges can and should play, both in the development of the law and the shaping of political consciousness. Direct engagement with external stakeholders, whether judicial or extrajudicial, involves trade-offs. Such external deliberation has the risk of transforming legal questions into political questions, and it raises normative questions about separation of powers. Um, we see this, for instance, in the case of the European Court of Human Rights, where there have been some very visible formal and semi-formal interviews by uh, European Court of Human Rights judges in debates that seek to influence the reform process. On the other hand, um, it's been argued that judges can actually contribute to increasing um, both democracy and accountability of international institutions that are now considered removed from the average citizen. We see this in the context of the Court of Justice of the European Union, where um, scholars, member states, even judges themselves, have argued <coughs> that um, separate opinions should be introduced at the court, because now, especially now, there's a greater need for transparency and accountability at the CGEU um, after the expansion of the, in 2004, and that separate opinions have a role to play in making judges seem more human and more accessible. But separate judicial speech, while it can demonstrate that judges are members of a larger community, judges nonetheless continue to be symbols and representatives of the law and of justice, and so the potential impact of their speech goes beyond the public perceptions of the individual judge, and it has implications for the integrity of the court when a judge is defending the integrity of the judicial institution or they're engaging in public outreach, this might strengthen the judiciary and safeguard its integrity and its decision-making process by making it more transparent and accessible. And greater public awareness of a court's activities may in fact help build support for the court and this might be very important in an era where there's backlash against the judiciary, both domestically and internationally, where external deliberation through separate judicial speech might, in fact, be the last defense for, some of, for the survival of some of these institutions. But I've probably way exceeded my time already. Um, so just to conclude, this project, as I said, is just the first step. We're still very much at the conceptual stage. The idea is to try and work through this conceptual framework, see if it even makes any sense once we start doing more fine-grained empirical work on individual institutions, and so any feedback um, from you would actually be really helpful as we're, as we're working through our categories and, and what would be useful. So with that, I welcome your questions. Thank you very much, Nia.